Treasure, a Dayton Pirate podcast. We usually start by having you introduce yourself. We're going, right? Yeah. yeah. Introduce yourself and then tell us your role uh, in Dayton and a little bit about what you did before you got here. So you can just get started whenever. That's a long story. No. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, we got time. I'm Alicia Wilson Gabor, legally, but I go by Wilson here. And I teach, I'm the, quote, new English teacher at the high Man. school as I am referred to by everyone in Dayton, <laughs> um, which is nice because it definitely speaks to the longevity of people yeah. who have been here and then the just how in the know everybody is. Yeah. I think that's good. It's a little scary too sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but now, I, now I've taken to introducing myself that way. So mm. I spoke to a board member um, on the phone and I, was, I said, you know, oh, this is Miss Wilson the new English teacher. Um, So he knew right away. Mm -hmm. uh, So it was pleasant. Um, So before this, so I've previously taught in Oregon circa 2011 to 16, but also Florida and Connecticut while living in Massachusetts. So I've been teaching um, six through 12 social studies and English. This is year 16 in a variety of states. Okay. So hopefully I'm here to stay. That's the plan. Yeah. I'm fascinated um, by your experience in each state and district and what what differentiates the different places from each other. Can you <laughs> that was speak? A good a, look. <laughs> and we we like to get candid here, so you know, speak openly. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about what the differences have been? Um, sure. So I started my teaching career in Florida. That's where I went to college um, and high school. Well, all school. But I wouldn't consider myself from Florida. Oh, Because I wasn't born there. Um, my parents moved born? me down there. I was born in Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Which is great okay. for spooky yeah, season. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Very great. Yeah. Um, but my parents moved us down there legitimately for Disney World. Because um, <laughs> my father's family was obsessed with Walt Disney World. Um, so that's where I spent a lot of my life. But when my husband and I met, um, we both had like an ultimatum for each other, mm-hmm. and mine was that I can no longer live in Florida. <laughs> so <laughs> I started one. my teaching career there in what is now, I believe, this you'll have to fact check it, but like seventh largest school district in the nation. Mm-hmm. Oh, in the um, nation. Yes. So in Florida, they do their school districts based on county. Mm-hmm. So it's massive. Mm-hmm. So the whole county is a school district. Yes, with one superintendent and then mm-hmm. five to seven area superintendents. Like regional superintendents, yeah. Okay. Um, and then goes down the line. But it is, it's massive. And there's good and bad to that. There's a lot of systems in place. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money floating around, yeah. not equally divided, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does put in, like, allocates a lot of funding for specific systems. Yes. Um, that being said, that can play out with less autonomy in the Mm -hmm. classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just really depends on who your area superintendent is, who your principal is, and what their vision for that part of the district is. It sounds very scripted, like we're all doing this because all the money's going to this. Yes, it can be. Well, when you're a large district, you can't, it's hard to wrap your arms around what's going on. So Mm -hmm. you rely more on the systems and the people because that guarantees in your mind, like everyone's teaching this 
curriculum across all thousand schools or whatever. You so, could put air quotes around. Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was given this curriculum exactly. and the professional development on it. Um, towards the end of my first few years in Florida, it became there became a teacher shortage. So mm-hmm. it became a place where you could be a teacher without a background in education, mm-hmm. which doesn't play out well mm-hmm. for students. Um, and it creates a lot of coming and going of um, teachers, of people. Mm-hmm. And so then we moved here, and um, I taught in Jervis and David Douglas. Okay. Both were good experiences. I actually know the Solem family mm-hmm. from my time in Jervis. Okay. Um, and that's one reason why I applied at Dayton was because back then, even Dayton had a really good reputation mm-hmm. from Mr. and Ms. Solem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that always just stuck with me. And mm-hmm. so when we moved back, there were jobs open kind of all over in smaller districts. Um, but I was really hoping for Dayton. So that went well for me. And then the Northeast... Um, is similar to, it's like a combination of the small districts out here and the large districts in Florida. So if you teach in like a large city, like Hartford, Connecticut is where I was. My husband was in Springfield, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Same thing, lots of large systems, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of bureaucracy that doesn't necessarily aid you in teaching, um, but also really high needs population until you get into the small town. So there's a huge um, wealth divide in New England. And they do get really good stats nationally. I was going to ask about that. But cause... it doesn't play out yeah. locally. Yep. So their stats are coming from the really large, wealthy, well-funded mm-hmm. districts. Yep. And, um, well, I guess they're not large technically, but they're wealthy. So in Connecticut, for example, um, we my district was probably one of the most impoverished districts right next door to one of the wealthiest Mm -hmm. and the resources that were available you could probably see it like just driving by yes facilities upkeep the absolutely the things that's fascinating I know I always wonder because um, I grew up in Washington state but my only experience in this career has been in Oregon and you hear all the time about how Oregon schools are at the bottom of the list in the nation and it just makes me wonder the extent to which you know you can even compare schools across the country yeah I think we're too large the social studies teacher in me feels that we're too large of a nation to do that type of comparison Mm -hmm. with also the individual states rights to laws and they have different metrics totally differentiate what we're doing funding mechanisms too it's Mm -hmm. it's completely separate well and you look at the 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 um, tests that they use to mm-hmm. compare, you know, and and how how those sometimes don't even measure what we're teaching. Yes, <laughs> it's like yeah. uh, to be able. Yes, to. so yeah. yeah. No, there's definitely an inequity between yeah. all the all the states and all of yeah. our schools. Yeah, and then within the states of New England, there's huge inequity. So you do get those really high test sto- scores, but you also get some of the lowest in right. the nation comparatively. Um, what do you? What do you like about Dayton so far? Or what is your experience here? My experience has been great. Um, and I've shared it with my students because the honeymoon is definitely over. Oh, already? Congratulations. That doesn't mean it's bad, but like it's yeah, not perfect, yeah, right? Sure. We know each other. It's actually a good sign. It means yeah. you're forming real 
relationships. That's my goal. Yeah. But I have been sharing like this is the first time and I can't remember how long that I go home and am able to like fully function as an adult outside of school. So I'm not carrying the stress of the mm-hmm. day with me. And that in large part is because of the way that the students are reacting mm-hmm. um, and like accomplishing the tasks in the classroom. And then the support of the adults here has been amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, it is nice. I, I was purposely looking for a smaller district for the sense of community mm-hmm. that feels like it is just innate in a small community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the teachers eat lunch together. We do a potluck every Friday. It's just good. It's just a good vibe to right. carry on with the day. Yeah. But the students... I can't tell you the last time in a classroom students have used my name, like said Miss Wilson when addressing me. What are they? Just yeah. at Miss or. Really? Yeah. Just. You, you don't get the teacher? It's hey, teacher. Or, no, teacher. I don't get hey teacher anymore. <laughs> and when they do, can't, couldn't find my name on the board somewhere, uh-huh. they would like pause and apologize. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, It's been years. Why is that? So many years. Yeah. What is your... Part of it is cultural. Like it, mm-hmm. and part of it is. Um, I think adults just accepting it as mm-hmm. being cultural, which is fine. Um, and then it just becomes a part of the system if nobody is enforcing sure. it at the school. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and I don't know. So I've sent home lots of Parent Square messages, like, thank you for sending in respectful students yeah. oh, wow. who are willing to try. It's been really great. So I think that's really uh, important to surface because – there is this narrative that in schools students are off the rails and impossible to manage and, you know, just so behind and, and can't regulate their emotions. And, you know, I while I've experienced that to some extent in my roles in schools, my actual more authentic experience is that while kids seem to be pretty in tune and sensitive to the world around them and, and sometimes more emotional maybe than I was used to in my generation kids now are more empathetic more uh caring i think than they've ever been in any generation that's been my experience yeah there's definitely a lot going on Mm -hmm. in the classroom with lots of different individual needs needs. Mm -hmm. but i'm also very candid with the students um and let them know you know listen i'm new there's 160 of you I, it's going to take me longer than your other teachers to learn your names. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am learning all of the adults' names, mm-hmm. first and last, because we address each other with first names, right. mm-hmm. but you address them with last names. Yeah. So I'm like, my brain is totally <laughs> overloaded. Yeah. And I just kind of lay it out for them that I'm a human too. Like mm-hmm. I'm setting up the systems in the classroom. You need to do these systems so that we can all – Right. Do something together that's productive. But at the same time, I'm a human being. Well, it um, sounds like sharing that vulnerability with the students allows them to express that as well and, and start that open relationship period. Yeah, so far it's working. So. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood. That's great. Um, what drew you to social studies and language arts? Um, so when I was in college I really thought I was going to be like a major magazine editor newspaper editor you know in New York City when I first got to college and then I took an intro to women's studies course um, which is based in history and in one semester I learned more than I did in four years of history in high school 
about not just women, but the world in general. Yeah. And I really felt like I had missed out. So I switched my major the first semester to women's studies, which does not play out with a job. (laughs) (laughs) So I graduated college and I ended up creating an elementary curriculum for the domestic violence shelter in town. And I was going into other classrooms, other people's classrooms, teaching, you know, kids how to deal with emotions. Mm -hmm. And this was like 2006, well before kids were empowered to Mm -hmm. be sensitive, like you were just saying. Um, And I just realized that I would be doing a better job if that classroom were run by me um, instead of going in an hour a week. Mm -hmm. And so I went back. Um, to school for my master's in social studies education, partly because my women's studies was based in a historical viewpoint of the world. And so it was an easy give. But then because of that major, I had just found a love for analyzing what we see Mm -hmm. happening in the world and how it's cyclical and how can we get that message out to students. Because when I was in high school, history was the worst class that I took. So I really just wanted it to not be the worst class. It was about just dates and names and memorization. It was like, put up the transparency, copy these notes, answer the question at the Mm -hmm. end of the chapter, make a timeline, here's a test. And Mm -hmm. it was just that for like four years. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I lived it. Right. Yeah. I just didn't, I wanted history to not be the worst class that students took Mm -hmm. because I find it really important to make decisions, to be a part of your community, to be an active citizen. Um, And English and social studies are sister subjects. Mm -hmm. So throughout my career, English has always been one or two subjects. It's one or two class periods a day that I taught Mm -hmm. because they go together so well. My husband is an English teacher of like, I don't know, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly talking about school yeah, Mm -hmm. and how to do school and education and how to make education better and what really works for kids. So... um, yeah, so I'm double endorsed because they go together so well. Mm-hmm. And I decided to, I just kind of needed a change right. from pure content to skills. Yep. Um, and I'm really enjoying it because I've only gotten to teach pure English mm-hmm. maybe one or two years in my mm-hmm. career. Can you um, unpack a little bit? You talk about what uh, social studies should not be. Can you talk about what in your mind it should be and language arts? Like as far as... When, what is your greatest hope that kids come away from your class either knowing or are able to do? Um, so I think it's the decision-making skills that go with the, like we were talking about yesterday, like the resiliency and critical thinking that it takes to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can see a piece of history or a part of a novel um, and analyze, you know, what might be coming next or in the world or in the text, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you can have discussions around how to solve that problem or how to educate others around you and how to be a part of the solution. I think that's my biggest goal is being able to read, write, and think for the larger picture critically. I think that we use that word so much now and nobody Mm -hmm. really can define it, but can you read, write, and think to solve problems Mm -hmm. and the way I frame it for students at the beginning of the year is so if someone's screaming at you from the other end of the hallway are you and it's rude are you going to immediately jump in and react Mm -hmm. or can you take just a 
semi-second to pause and think through the end of this situation right. to make a good decision. Mm -hmm. Right. So really, it's communication. Yeah. Reading, writing, uh, mm -hmm. thinking. And um, it's interesting because the example you give it kind of underscores what we've been talking a lot about, which, and I know we try to avoid the term soft skills, but I think people are more familiar with that uh, word than, you know, employability skills or foundational skills. But the example you use with students is really something that's more, uh, uh, you know, people would associate with uh, a disposition or a character trait or, you know, versus an academic skill, being able to respond not out of frustration. Right. When you're frustrated. Well, that's easy for them to understand. Yeah. But then if we're diving into like the text, like right now we're reading 1800s classic literature, can you respond to the text and what the author is saying in like a higher level? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can you understand, first of all, what he meant in 1850? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does it apply to what you're living today? Because we can find the connection. Mm -hmm. But that's really difficult. Um, and then what did this book or what did this story mean for how those people and we view the world? Right. And then that type of thinking, like I, I find myself doing it when I watch movies. Well, when it I'm applies everywhere. Yeah. yeah when, I'm, when I'm playing with my child or I'm meeting new parents for play dates or et cetera, like can you think about the impact yeah. that this situation is having mm -hmm. on you, on your small community, on the larger right. world, I think is really important. Yeah. I think both social studies and language arts are by far my favorite subjects to engage in. And I think it's because both are really uh, a lens to study yourself and the world around you, you know, and the mm -hmm. in interaction between the two. And there's like a psychology component mm -hmm. to yep. both. When you are, we talk a lot about um, our priority in Dayton this year being really student engagement being one of our sole focuses. So what what kind of teaching strategies do you choose that most engage students? Like what, what do you find uh, gets them excited about the learning in your class? I think the way that um, I help them apply whatever we're doing to something that they connect with. Yeah. Um, so like the Scarlet Letter is really just about a woman who steps outside the box of what is accepted. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can look around my classroom and I can see, you know, a handful or half or more of students who who do that. Right. Maybe they hide it, but it's obvious. Maybe they do that. It, I'm like literally dressed like one of them today because it's dressed like a student day. <laughs> oh. um, that's excuse the outfit. And this is not my normal. Um, though it is all clothes that came out of my closet. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it is normal. <laughs> I love how you're not all in with the spirit week. Yeah. I'm all in with the spirit week. That's great. Um, but fi somehow finding that connection, and it doesn't happen for every single student every day, but that's the goal. Um so in my class, we always start with a free write in a journal. Oh, I, love um, I love that. And so they can write about anything, but mm -hmm. I put a prompt up. Mm -hmm. that, And they're usually, like, controversial. Not mm -hmm. so controversial, but yep. pick a side. Yeah, right? but that's because that's what's engaging the kids. Right. You know, something mm -hmm. provocative. Pick a mm -hmm. side. Right. Pick and side. the books are, not, in my language arts classroom, or anytime we're reading things in social studies, um, are never read like on their own, like here, right. read this, yeah. right. <laughs> see you next week. <laughs> right. It's always, you know, on Tuesdays we read aloud, we stop every page or so, we explain what happened, they're writing notes, they're sticking on a sticky, 
Thursdays, yes, they're reading alone, but I always preempt, like, what is it that you're going to see, Mm -hmm. right? And then we come back together at the end. What did you read? And right now it's, what did you think? What do you think you read? Because half the class is like, I don't know. <laughs> giving what it is. me crazy. Like, I read 12 pages and I'm not sure. Yeah. Because it's written in a language that's. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's Hawthorne is known as one of the most descriptive writers, mm-hmm. which is wonderful for me, but I'm 40 and I've read the book <laughs> probably 12 times. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so they have, what do you think you read? And then they share out and I fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. So they're never leaving my classroom without teaching moments right right? and then we spend the other three days of the week like diving into the story and having those deep Mm -hmm. discussions having an opportunity to ask questions Mm -hmm. or share things that might be bothering them about what they read right we've talked before that learning is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. like practice is uncomfortable i don't want to do this like but you're practicing a skill you're you're in this discomfort you're in this disequilibrium Mm -hmm. and learning Uh, can you speak about a time where that happened to you in the classroom or in the profession Oh, I think all the time. <laughs> I think um, so. I think it's important for students to know that teachers are just as nervous at the beginning of the school year as they are, especially for me starting in a new district. Um, and it's uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable to get to know the adults, to come up with the systems that you think will work, being vulnerable enough to say, okay, that doesn't work for this class period, mm-hmm. even though it worked for that class period. Mm-hmm. And constantly reflecting and being able to change. So I've been teaching for 16 years, and you would think that I could just pull a lesson out of yeah. my desk <laughs> and not have to think about it. But I've just never operated that way um, because every year, and sometimes there are days where every class period it's different. Because and you have to be willing to stop and reflect and make changes so that the students are at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm okay with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I've moved across the country several yeah, times. Right. But just in the profession in general, too, willing to, you know, go to professional development and maybe you never thought of that before and you've been in it for a long time. How did, how did I not think of that right. before? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, or in that way. And so I think it happens a, like almost weekly, if not daily, <laughs> yeah. in the beginning of the year for me. Yeah. So, yeah, you just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You, you And the more you push yourself to be uncomfortable and, and work through it, the the, the more it doesn't phase well, you. Well, the more you embrace you learning, yeah, too. Exactly. It's like we're, we're learning, we're progressing, we're, we're, we're getting better every day. Right. So yeah. when you talk about professional development, um, as you know, because you've been a part of the last few weeks, we're really trying to almost start from the ground floor in Dayton about what is education for and what do we want for our kids uh, what do you think that kids need most right now, students need most, and, and what's your philosophy of education? That's a big question. Yeah. Um, I think that kids definitely do need to be pushed to learn. I think that in COVID, we definitely took a huge step back in holding students accountable. And now that we've come through the other side, I'm starting to see, at least in Dayton, um, the tail end of that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. students are willing to come in and be there to learn um, and and take academic risks. I think teaching students to take academic risks is huge in the classroom because then that plays out in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that with that push, though, you have to set up a system of supports for when kids fail or when they feel like they're going to fail Mm -hmm. um, because that impedes them from taking the academic risk. Mm -hmm. And so, like, pushing them to their next level, I've had a lot of discussions of kids who are like, I hate reading, I can't read, Mm -hmm. I don't understand this, I'm not going to do it. And it's on an individual basis. So I have tables in my room. So if I have a table of five, there are five different reading levels and Mm -hmm. five different comprehension levels. And I just have to have that conversation of, it doesn't matter where you enter my classroom, my goal is to have you leave at the next level. Right. So that could be level of comfort. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, comfort in taking those academic risks. It could be a literacy level or a writing level. Taking that approach in my classroom allows me then to take the valedictorian, which I just learned I have, but I must because I have all the juniors, (laughs) (laughs) which is odd for me. And as you know, coming from the larger districts when you don't teach, you are the, I am the language arts teacher, new English teacher. Right. (laughs) Um, But I can push that student as well as a student who just found out they have a learning disorder, Mm -hmm. right. And Mm -hmm. taking them each to another level Mm -hmm. by having those conversations and creating the safety net for them. And I think the idea of a safety net, like my husband and I often talk about it both in real life and in, not real life, but in personal lives and in educational lives, we often see people of extreme wealth with a safety net. So they Mm -hmm. take more risks in opening their own business or continuing on to school or speaking back Mm -hmm. to um, their boss when they have an idea, right? Because they have that safety net of their parents or some sort of inherited wealth. So shouldn't we be creating that same metaphorical safety net for our students so that students who are really well supported at home and students who do not feel as supported both have a safety net in the classroom? What does that look like? Because, I mean, wealth is a very tangible objective, right? It looks like having those conversations with students who are like, oh, last year's class was really easy. Are you going to push me? Well, yes, in these three ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And having conversations with students who are like, I don't want to read or I can't read this. Oh, here's a no fear version. Mm. Or here is, you know, a different version of the same text. Mm -hmm. You still have to do the same thing. Here's a sentence frame. Mm -hmm. And saying, I'm going to help you, but right. I need for you to try. Right. right? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's differentiated learning compared to what we grew yeah. up with. Of, yeah. It's, we're all learning the same way. Education yeah. has changed in 20 yeah. years. Yeah. It's interesting because the I think it's Mike Matos who says the equation in schools has always been that, uh, that time is a constant and... Uh, instruction is a constant and learning is the variable mm-hmm. um, meaning I'm, I'm going to spend seven and a half hours a day uh, doing this lesson plan from this curriculum and you may learn it <laughs> or you might not <laughs> depending on you know our interplay as instructor and a student but what needs to change in schools is that learning is the constant and how we get there, how much time it takes, and how we instruct students—that is the var- Those are the variables, mm-hmm. right? It's just real hard to make that play out in in our system because our system is set up where 
we just churn, you know what I mean, students through in this industrial model of education. Yes. So we talk about systems and, and being that's what education is, but sometimes we have to break the system. Yeah. And I think we talked about just yesterday in our late start that, you know, having the flexibility to know when a system's not working for an individual right. student. With a, whether it's an IEP or whether it's a 504 or whether it's just a, finding a different way to reach a student in, in the classroom. Yep. Yeah, and so, you know, for me, I, I, to me, to go from bad to good it, with anything, systems are a necessity, right? Because you As have, a system administrator, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but to go from good to groundbreaking, like you said, yeah. the systems will get you exactly what the systems are, meant are designed to do. to do, which yeah. is not usually something that, you know, outstanding. Yeah. It's something they can get you just, only so far. And at yeah. some point you have to Break reach. your own systems. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have, I think every teacher has, quote, systems in our classroom, right? So right. you have a turn-in basket in a certain place. Yeah. This is the late work policy. This is the expectation for these things. And then you have to constantly have those conversations because the students, of course, will call you out when you're when you, they're like, well, how come you did this, this, and this yeah. well, with wasn't this there. student, <laughs> yeah. but with me? And you right. have to be willing to have those conversations and say, so there is an overarching system yep. mm-hmm. so that we can all come in and be comfortable enough to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, you are all human beings. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yep. if you are willing to have a conversation with me or write it in your journal or pass yep. me a sticky note that says, you know, something terrible happened this morning. Can you please right. help me? Or can you please not freak out if I don't turn this in today? You know, have having the flexibility with the systems mm-hmm. to meet the needs of every student, I think is one reason why teaching is so exhausting. It is. And and it's not just breaking systems to support the students who need something uh, different in terms of a leg up, but also I think about even, like I'm sure as an English teacher, that you tell people here's the rules of grammar and the rules of writing. When you get good enough, you break them. Yeah. You're allowed yeah, to. And exactly. so I think the same is true for um, teaching. I think a lot of administrators in an effort to to make teaching across the board something that's guaranteed and viable and and solid they say here's the curriculum you need to have fidelity to the curriculum here's your scope and sequence turn in lesson plans and what you do is you might bring the bottom up but you squash the top so that they're not as effective so i always struggle with mandated curriculum and instruction for teachers because the great teachers that will hold them back from the magic Absolutely. that they create in the classroom. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like the systems or the curriculum or the scope and sequence is the foundation to support you when you're struggling or, <laughs> or when you're when new, you need, or, when you're when you're new. new right. yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But be, but beyond that, you can grow beyond that. And that's another system to break. Like I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to use this textbook because what I've got is magical. <laughs> I just yeah. had this conversation with a student. Um, she is taking a junior, lo- my junior level class, even though she's a 10th grader mm-hmm. and Um, She's in a pretty high-level class of her peers um, across the board, but I was giving out sentence frames to help them understand um, the main character's relationship with her daughter, and she took it in a different, deeper Mm. way, but then called me over because it wasn't the Correct, quote unquote, yeah. Right, and yeah. I so I had to have this individual conversation that said, okay, so the majority of the class didn't quite understand mm-hmm. the figurative language that we were focusing on. 
So I broke it down for them in this way, but really yours is where we should be going. <laughs> right. So please continue with that thought. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those scaffolds of education of like sentence frames and things like that can stifle yep. the higher level thinkers and writers. So I'm constantly like, it's an asterisk. You don't have to use this. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I'm walking around like, you should totally use that. Like, right. Definitely get started yeah. with that sentence. Here's your support. Right. And then when you don't need the support anymore, like like making a building, you know, yep. you're going to use the scaffolding. And then when you don't need it, mm-hmm. you move on. Yep. So it's really important to check in with the, the students at all levels, mm-hmm. right? But we do focus a lot on the students who need a leg up mm-hmm. um, so that they don't drown in yeah. the system of education. But we really need to also be pushing the right. students who are already there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Do you have anything else you would like to share with us today or any, th- any parting thoughts? No. I mean, nope. So far, I really, I really enjoy my time at Dayton. Oh, awesome. Yeah, That's it's been great. great. That's great to so, hear. Yeah, I have been too as a, another new person right. here. Yeah, I'm also the new superintendent. Correct. So <laughs> the qualifier of new. I'm I the old well. tech person, I guess. <laughs> I love how how there's so much longevity, though, mm-hmm. in yeah. the district. It definitely speaks to people's, you know, willingness to stay. Mm-hmm. If we have a new superintendent, that means there's been some change. I think we have a new-ish principal. Yep. Right. Second year. So there's been some change, but then we have people who have been here for 15, 20, 25 years. And that says something. Yeah, Yeah. it really does. Yeah. People are proud to be from Dayton Mm -hmm. for sure. Well, thanks for joining us today. It's been talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Buried Treasure, a Dayton pirate podcast. Join us next time as we interview more friends of the Dayton School District.